0: Oh, y'all, I'm just accumulating cups of coffee up here. Do you see this? (laughs) Just trying to keep my options open, you know? Um, Well, thank you all so much. You all have been so kind and welcoming here, especially as we've had time like lunch to get to know each other. It's been so fun to hear how you're processing some of these things, what the Lord is doing in your life, what he's done in your life up to this point to bring you to a place of wanting to be a student of the word and to share his word with others. So thank you. It is such a joy. Um, I'm so. I feel so welcomed by this group. Um, there have I go to a lot of churches, but your group in particular has just been so welcoming and hospitable. So thank you. It's been just so fun to be with you. So we are moving into our final workshop now about how do we become teachers of the Bible? What are some practical steps that we can take? And we're going to wrap up our How to Study the Bible workshop. We're going to talk about the meta narrative portion that we didn't talk about um, because I ran over. Um, and then we're going to talk about how to teach the Bible. So I'm going to actually back these guys up. We are going to look at um, how to find a place that a text falls in the meta narrative of Scripture. Like I said before, the meta narrative is the one great big story of the Bible that God is teaching. Um, God is teaching one message. He has one message for his people in in the Bible, and that's the message of Christ. It's the message that we needed a Savior, and Christ was that Savior who saves us and makes us right with God again. And so as we look at the whole picture of the Bible, and anytime we look at one text within that, we want to situate it in that grand timeline. When we look at this big timeline, we want to say, where am I in this story? Am I pre-Christ? Am I post-Christ? Am I at the time of Days on Earth. We want to situate whatever text we're studying within the overall meta narrative of Scripture. It's going to help us understand the context better. And so um, I would love to go over the meta narrative of Scripture with us um, in brief. Um, you have a spot for this in your workshop one materials. You'll see um, these images and graphics there. And we're going to lay it out by chapters. If we were to break up the Old Testament and New Testament into chapters or eras or seasons of life within the text, this is how I would break them up. And this is not my own. Um, Carol Kaminsky was a professor of mine in seminary. She's a Genesis scholar, um, a Hebrew scholar, and she came up with these different paradigms. This is how she talked to me, and with her permission, I'm sharing it with you today. Um, so the first era that we see within the meta narrative of Scripture is that of creation A picture of the tree represents the period of creation. This is where God makes the world and he makes it so, so good. The Lord created everything that we see and everything that we can hear and touch and taste and everything that we cannot. God made it all. And he placed man and woman in a beautiful garden in which he commanded them to walk in fruitfulness. He commanded them and called them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to care for the garden, to name the animals, to steward the land in a way that gives him glory as they walked with him in unhindered fellowship. This is the era of creation. And yet, the tree also represents um, what happens in the garden. Adam and Eve, in this unhindered fellowship with God, Um, have been given one command of what they should not do. They are not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the enemy comes to Eve and says to her, did God really say that? Like God knows that if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you're going to be like God. Like you're going to be like him. And so you really wouldn't need him in the way that you need him now. Wouldn't it be great to be like God? And so, Eve takes from the tree and eats it and gives it to Adam who's with her and that is the entrance of sin into all of creation. We see at the fall, we see brokenness run through the veins of all of creation. It affects the animals that are in the garden. It affects their relationship with God. It affects their relationships with their bodies, their relationships with each other, their relationship to the ground. Everything is fractured. This unhindered relationship that they had with God is utterly demolished. They have barriers everywhere. Think with me, just in Genesis chapter 3, all the barriers that we see. In the garden, they walked unhindered with God, and then as soon as, as soon as the fall occurs, barriers. Adam and Eve ricochet from each other. They cover their nakedness. They put up a barrier between their nakedness and each other. Barriers between them and God. God is walking in the garden, and they hide themselves. And then God eventually says, I'm going to make for you a permanent covering, which is one of the animals that they were called to steward in the garden. The first life has been taken in the garden as they cover themselves. We have barriers of fig leaves, barriers of hiding, barriers of animal skins, and then eventually the barrier of them being exiled from the garden. They're kicked out of the garden. They cannot enjoy God's unhindered fellowship anymore because they are now sinful and God cannot be in the presence of sin. The... Um, image of the tree reminds us of this era of creation. But the story doesn't end there. Even though mankind can't have unhindered fellowship with God, God still has relationship with his people. And the image of a gift represents the um, era of Abraham. God reaches out to his people. God reaches out to his people time and time again and in a very special way, establishes a relationship with a man named Abraham. God calls Abraham not because Abraham was good, not because he was righteous, not because he was the best person God could find for the job, but because God is kind and sovereign. God reaches out to Abraham and chooses him. He calls him into relationship with him, and this is one of the first times that we see in the text the use of the word covenant, or in Hebrew it's bereith. God establishes a covenant relationship with Abraham and Sarai and gives them this promise. You are going to bear a son who will be a blessing ultimately to the nations. It's the first time, as the Jesus Storybook Bible reminds us, it's one of the first times in Scripture that God whispers the name of Christ in the ears of God's people and said, You're going to have a son, and that son is going to be a blessing to many. This picture of a gift underscores that justification, God's gift of being brought into relationship with him, comes by God's grace. It doesn't come by human merit. It's a gift to have a relationship with God. And even though Abraham and Sarah could not conceive and bear a son on their own, God gives them the gift of a child and fulfills his promises to them. And as we move through the patriarchs in the Old Testament, we come to the era of Sinai. God's promise to Abraham and Sarah comes true. God keeps his promise. What he said would happen happens. Sarah conceives a child and bears a son when that son um, grows up and is married and bears more children. And eventually, just like God said, the children of Abraham are more than the stars in the sky. And as they move because of famines and because of things in the land, they end up in Egypt. They're enslaved there. And um, the Lord, through miraculous ways, breaks them out of slavery and brings them now a nation, not just this family, but now a nation, into walking with him as his chosen people And God does not take this responsibility lightly. He does not take this relationship with his people lightly, but he brings them into covenant relationship with himself. And this is where we see some of that law covenant language in the Old Testament. We see that God gives his people on Mount Sinai through Moses commands. He says, if you do these things, then you will be my people and I will be your God. God establishes a covenant with them, an agreement with them of what their relationship will look like and calls them to mirror his character as they follow his commands. This is the era of Sinai. As we continue moving through the New Testament, we come to the era of kings. A crown represents this period where gods and people insisted on having a king just like all the other nations, like kids in a cafeteria, they looked around and they wanted to be just like everybody else. And so God gives them a king and promises them, every king is going to disappoint you. Every king is going to disappoint you. They were supposed to have one king, and that was supposed to be God. But they wanted to be just like every other nation, and so they got a king. And king after king disappointed them. Even the best of kings, David, disappointed them in the end. He let them down. He was not a perfect king. And so disappointing king after disappointing king, God tells his people, one day I'm going to send the king. I'm going to send one king who will be king over every other king. This is the era of the kings. And now we move into the era of exile. The picture here is of a vulture or a bird of prey because God's people did not believe God's promises. Just like Sarai who laughed when Abraham was told um, that she would bear a child, just like um, God's people in Egypt who doubted that God would set them free, just like God's people who doubted that God would be a sufficient king, God's people once again distrust the promises of God. They do not keep God's commands. And just like God's word promised, they were sent into exile. The temple is destroyed, uh, or the tabernacle is destroyed. They've been sent to wander in a land not their own. They're sent into exile. And the birds of prey represent this era where they didn't have a place to lay their heads, they didn't have a permanent place of dwelling. They literally were given, um, God gave them instructions on how to build the tabernacle and it included poles that they should carry. Why? Because that tabernacle was not permanent. It was meant to be a temporary place where God would meet with his people, but then it was to be rolled up, packed up, and carried on their shoulders as they moved to another place. They had not been brought back home yet. And so that is the era of exile. And then lastly, We have the era of the temple, and in the temple, God gives his people one of the grandest promises of the Old Testament, and that is that he is going to come and dwell among them permanently. He calls to his people and gives them instructions to build a temple, a temple with a permanent foundation. They're going to make this one out of stone, y'all. They're going to make it with some metal. This isn't a tent to be rolled up and carried throughout the desert. No, this is a temple. It's going to have a foundation which tells God's people what? that they're finally home. God's going to come and actually live in the neighborhood. That was the promise of the temple. God's actually going to come and dwell among them. And that's the era of the temple. Though the temple was later destroyed and though they build a second temple where God's presence, the glory cloud does not return, this era of the temple marks the season of God's covenant relationship with his people as they worshiped him according to his promises in the temple And after the temple, we come to this era of expectation. God has brought his people to a place where he has promised to come and dwell among them. The temple has been destroyed. They built a second temple and the glory cloud never returns. Yet they know that the Messiah is promised. They know that the true king is to come. They know that the one who will crush the serpent's head is to come. God has whispered promises of the coming Messiah all along, all throughout the scriptures. This has been the promise to God's people that the Messiah would come, and so we enter an era of expectation. We close the Old Testament and open the New Testament in this season of expectation. The Messiah was promised to come, and God's people are waiting, and then he comes. When we open into Luke chapter 2, we read about how the virgin was really pregnant, just like God said she would be, how the Messiah came in Bethlehem just like God said he would, how shepherds found him just like he said they would, and in Jesus's birth and life um, and death and resurrection, we see all of the promises of God throughout the Old Testament fulfilled in the person of Christ. The era of the Messiah marks a very huge chunk of the beginning of the New Testament in all of the Gospels. And then after Christ rises from the dead and ascends back into heaven, we enter Pentecost. Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit of God comes on the first believers in the early church. Though people were filled with the Spirit in the Old Testament, it was always temporary. and It was always sort of for specific tasks. You know, the Spirit of God would come upon somebody for um, playing music or for prophesying. But this was to be a permanent filling of the Holy Spirit for those who follow Jesus. And that's why Jesus told his disciples, actually, it's better that I go. Can you imagine seeing your resurrected Lord and him being like, actually, it's going to be better for you if I take off because something better is going to come. You would just not believe him. You would just think there's nothing better than for us to have you with us. he said, I'm going to send the counselor. I'm going to send the spirit of God to dwell in you. And that is the era of Pentecost where we see the Holy Spirit indwell believers for power in ministry to spread the gospel. And that is the beginning of the early church. Then we enter the era of teaching. People have the Holy Spirit. Believers have the Holy Spirit. They have the good news about Jesus. But what now? Like we talked about, what now? What do we do How do we live out this new life in Christ? And so we see teachings as the apostles write letters to churches saying, this is what it looks like to walk as a person of faith. This is what it looks like to work out um, this good news of the gospel that we have. And then the door at the end represents what is yet to come. The Bible, the entire canon of scripture closes with what is still promised to come. And that message is the same as the message of the entire Bible, friends. He is coming. Jesus is coming. And that is still ahead of us. When we get, step into the book of Revelations, we see um, all of these promises, all of these confusing word pictures that we get, all of these prophecies about what is to come and what will happen. But the message is clear. Jesus is coming. He's going to come back for his bride. He's going to come and ransom those who are his and bring them into full and final reunion with himself. This is the meta-narrative of scripture. This is the big picture of the Bible. And if you look at it, and this is what I can't take any credit for, my professor, like I said, Carol Kaminsky, um, came up with this. If you look at these words, these different eras, you'll see that the first letter spells casket empty. The old testament spells casket, and the new testament spells empty. It's a helpful way to remember the big story of the Bible because that's the one big message, right? The tomb is empty. Everything in our Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we went to that tomb, if the women went to the tomb the day after the resurrection, and if it was full, our faith is in vain. But it's not. The casket is empty. Jesus has risen from the dead, and it is all true. It's all real. And so that's the big picture of the Bible. That's the meta narrative of Scripture. So as we look at this, we want to ask ourselves— because we're still in the era of saying, what does it mean? Where is our text in First Peter within this paradigm? Where are we as we read First Peter? We're in the era of teachings. So we know as we camp it in the teaching era of the metanarrative, we know that the book of First and Second Peter, those books are going to give us practical teaching on how we live out our salvation. It's not necessarily telling us details about Jesus's historic life and teaching, but it's teaching us how we can work this out as we live our lives, this side of conversion, this side of the good news about Jesus Christ. So that is the last question we want to ask ourselves as we study the Bible, as we're students of the word. And now we're going to move into How should we communicate this to others? How should we understand these things? What do we do with this now? So we've mined the text. we said, what does it say? We've said, what does it mean? But now what do we do? The next question we have to ask ourselves is an application and ask ourselves, how should this change me? How should the text change me in my daily life? Not just how, what does it mean or what does it say? Not just what is here, but what is supposed to be here for my life and my walk with Christ? And so the first question we want to ask ourselves is, what does this passage teach us about God? What does this passage teach us about God? We always want to be asking questions of where the text points us to Christ. Jen Wilkin, one of my favorite Bible teachers, always says, we have enough conferences for women that says, you are a beautiful daughter of the king. She says, let's stop that. She's like, I want to say, behold your king. Like, we don't need to hear anymore about how God finds us beautiful, how he finds us, whatever. Behold your king. We want to look in the text first for what does it say about God? What is it teaching us about God? And so one of the best ways that you can do this is mark any place that you see something about God, any reference to God, whether it's on a printout or write in your own Bible, we want to pay attention to what it says about God himself. And we want to pay attention to three specific categories of application for ourselves we want to pay attention to God's character ask ourselves what does this teach me about who God is we want to ask questions of what is God's activity in the world what is God's activity in the world and what does it teach me about God's kingdom what is it like in the economy of God What is it like in God's world and in his kingdom? We want to ask ourselves these questions about what does the passage teach me about God, his character, about his coming kingdom? And so as we look at this, let's read this one more time together and ask ourselves what is God up to in the world? Does this passage teach us anything about God's character? And then does this passage also teach us anything about the kingdom of God? What is it like in the economy of God? What is it like in his world as opposed to the kingdom of this world? So let me read it for us and look at, as I read, look at your paper and mark any references to God's character, his activity, or his kingdom. 1 Peter 1, 3-9 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, friends, tell me, what does this passage teach us about Christ? Do we see anything about God's character in this passage? His great mercy. God is great. In mercy, absolutely. What else do we see? He's powerful. Yes, he's the one guarding salvation. Good. Do we see anything else? Yes, he's blessed. He's the father. These things are all pointing us to who God is. One of the terms that we use in the theological world is the attributes of God. So as you look at who God is in his character, consider what his attributes are. It's as if our kids were asking, what is so-and-so like? Like, what's our neighbor like? And you were to describe a friend to them. You're describing their attributes. Well, they're kind, and they're busy, and they're funny, and all of those things. Those are all attributes of a person. And God's character, his attributes can be put into two camps, his communicable attributes and his incommunicable attributes. So communicable, you can hear it in the word, are the ones that can be communicated to us. Communicable attributes are things like gentleness and kindness and generosity and love and mercy and grace. They're attributes that God has that we are called to also mirror in our own lives. They're communicable. And then God also has incommunicable attributes like being infinite. He has existed before time began and will exist after this world is long gone. God is infinite. He's eternal in that way, in a way that we, he was not created. We are not eternal in the same way that God is eternal. He is all-knowing. We are not all-knowing. Those are his incommunicable attributes because they are ways that we cannot mirror God's character. We cannot be sovereign, praise the Lord. We cannot be sovereign, but God is sovereign. So as you're looking, ask yourself these questions of God's character. Are they communicable attributes or are they incommunicable attributes? So when we look at God being merciful, is that a communicable or incommunicable attribute of God's? Communicable. We are called to be merciful, but God is merciful. Now, let's look at God's activity in the world. What does this passage teach us about God's activity in the world? What is he doing in this passage? Are there any verbs that show us what God's activity looks like? He's causing us to be born again, yes. God is the one initiating this act of salvation. In the gospel, Jesus, is the, God is the one who sent the Savior. He has caused us to be born again to this living hope that we have. God is the one who is able to save us. The text is teaching us that God is the only one who can actually save us from our sins. Friends, we would call that a definitively incommunicable attribute of God's. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save others. God is the one causing us to be born again. That's good. There's one other thing in this passage that God is doing. The text, Peter is telling us God is doing this. What else is he doing? He is guarding. He is the one that is guarding our inheritance. Specifically, he's talking about how we are being guarded or the believers of the dispersion are being guarded by God. He is the one doing that, preserving his people. He's preserving his saints. I think this is such a sweet um, testimony to God's infinite character, but this book was written to a group of people um, that were from all different socioeconomic classes, and most likely included, because we see this in um, some of the conclusion of his greeting, Um, and then um, we also see this in Paul's letters. But we see that there were a lot of slaves that were included among the people of God. They heard the good news of the gospel, but they were sort of like, they were slaves not in the early American sense. They were slaves in the sense of being household dependents. They lived in the household, they worked for their lodging, they worked for their food, and sometimes they made a little bit of money, but they were definitely the lowest um, class that they knew in the society, in culture. And so slaves were counted among the people of God as equal parties in the gospel. They equally had a share in the wealth of the gospel. The good news about Jesus extended as equally to them as it did to any of their employers, any of those that they worked for. But one of the cultural things that we don't often know, and we have to look to history books to understand, is that slaves in this day could not own property. They could not be the recipient of any kind of inheritance. It was a law. It was a cultural rule and a rule mandated by civil government. And so Peter is teaching the people that everybody in the household of God has an inheritance. What a joy that must have been for somebody to hear, somebody who could not be the recipient, even if his master said, I want to leave you, I love you, I want to leave you everything that is mine. Legally, they could not receive it. But in Christ, they have an inheritance that who is making sure that they get it? God. God is the one guarding their inheritance. So we've asked the question of God's character. We've asked the question of God's activity in the world. And let's ask any questions about his kingdom. What is it like in God's world? What are things that are real in the world of God, in the mind of God, that maybe are opposed to the things of this world? So let me give you an example because this one's a little more difficult to grasp. In the study that I wrote for Lent, it's called The Way of the Kingdom, because in Jesus' final days as he walks to the cross, he teaches his disciples all about the kingdom of God. We see over and over and over in these short chapters, though he does it before it gets really condensed, he says, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this, and he uses all these different word pictures to tell his people what the kingdom of God is like. And some of the things that he shares is one of the examples that we study in this study is that a widow comes into the temple and she puts her two mites in. And it was probably less than a day's wages. But Jesus tells his disciples, she gave everything that she had. And then the wealthy came in and come in and they give this big donation to the church and or to the synagogue. And Jesus says, the widow gave more because she gave everything that she had. And what Jesus is teaching his people is that this is what it is like in the kingdom of God. Those who give everything they have, we're not counting it in dollars and cents. The Lord does not assign value in the way that the world assigns value. We're not assigning value in the kingdom of God by dollars and cents like the world does, but we're elevating the sacrifice of God's people. That's what God is looking for, a heart that is sold out that makes everything available all for the sake of the gospel, as opposed to somebody who gives a large chunk of money. That is the way of the kingdom and how it's totally upside down. From the way of the world's kingdom. Everything in God's kingdom seems backwards to us if we live according to the world's code of conduct. But when we learn to walk as members of and citizens of the kingdom of God, we find more and more that we will mirror God's character as we live it out in our neighborhoods and in our lives and in our families. And so, what does this passage teach us is true in God's kingdom? What is the upside down thing that He is pointing out to these people? Being tested by fire. So they are being tested, and we know a little bit about what that means for them. They've been scattered. They're exiles in their home. But what is the thing that we pointed out that there's this tension in language between what is lasting and what is not lasting? What is short and what is eternal? What does that teach us about God's kingdom and how things are backwards in God's economy than we know them in this world? Yes, so gold, for example, perishes. Well, we don't really experience that in this world, right? We would have a tendency to think, well, these finances are what's eternal, right? These finances are what's lasting, right? And they're ex- experiencing some serious physical discomfort. I don't know about you, but this world teaches you that if you are physically uncomfortable, that, that is maybe the worst thing for you. This is where the prosperity gospel gets its teeth, friends. It cuts its teeth on the reality That most of us do not like physical discomfort. And so we assume that that means God must not want it for us. That sickness or struggle or suffering or persecution for the name of Christ must be out of line with God's will. You must just not be walking with God in the way you should. You must not have quite enough faith. The prosperity gospel cuts its teeth on the kingdom of this world, not according to God's kingdom. The upside-down way of God's kingdom is that what is eternal is their inheritance in Jesus Christ. They may have lost all of their resources. They may have lost all of their comfort. They They may have lost their homes and even their families. But he's saying these trials are temporary, and they do not hold a candle to the grand inheritance that you have in salvation. The way of the kingdom, the way of God's kingdom is that salvation is eternal. It is everlasting. This is the way God has set up his kingdom so that it can't be thwarted. Money cannot buy it. Suffering cannot destroy it. This is the way of God's kingdom. So we want to ask ourselves in any passage, what does this teach me about God? What does it teach me about who he is, his character, his communicable and incommunicable attributes? What does it teach me about his activity in the world? What's he doing? What's he doing? What is he up to? And what is his kingdom like? And then lastly, we want to ask ourselves, when, we, when it comes to application, when we ask how should this change me, we, we want to ask ourselves, what does this teach me about myself or mankind? What does it teach me about myself or mankind? And so I want to challenge us to look for three things in the text every time we want to apply it. Look for three things, just like we did with what does it teach me about God? When we ask ourselves, what does it teach me about mankind? We want to look for three things. We want to ask, what does this teach me about my character and what it should be? What should my character look like? And when you look at the communicable attributes of God, because you will have done that step first, if you see that the text says, God is loving. And you've written that down. What is God's communicable attribute here? It's loving. Your application is going to be to mirror his character. In ways that we can, we are to mirror his character. So when you ask yourselves, what should I do differently? How should I be different? What character should I adopt? It's going to be what you have seen about God. God's not going to call you to be sovereign because you can't be sovereign. But God is kind, he is loving, he is just, he is merciful. And when we see these things in the text, we see our call to mirror his character. So we want to ask ourselves, what character am I to develop? How am I to imitate God's character? And then we're also going to look for commands. The second thing we want to look for is commands. Look for verbs that have an implied you to them. So there's no subject in the sentence but it says, like Paul says, rejoice. The implied subject is you. (laughs) You rejoice. You rejoice always and in all things. Look for verbs that have that imperative nature to them, that don't have a subject in front of them. So a lot of times Paul or Peter will give commands to a group of people that may or may not apply to us directly. We may have to read that command to an original audience to understand how we're to worship God as we study that passage but there are a lot of commands that have the implied you and it's you rejoice you endure in suffering you proclaim the good news of the gospel so we want to look for commands and we want to have feet that are quick to obedience when we see commands in God's word and then lastly we want to ask ourselves if there's something we want to we need to be believing differently so we want to look at characters we want to look at commands and we want to look at beliefs Is there something here that God is calling me to embrace as true that I am not embracing as true? Is there something here that God is calling me to agree with him about as being ultimately reliable? That I'm right now not ultimately agreeing with God that it is reliable and that it is true. Is there something here for me to believe differently A lot of times we study the text and we say, but I want an application for how I should deal with this difficult relationship. And that's good. We want to have a knee-jerk reaction where we look to the word of God, (laughs) where we start looking to the word of God when we have these difficult scenarios. But we also want to be people that go to the word of God to say, God, teach me what to believe. Teach me what to believe about you, about your character and your kingdom. Teach me what to believe about this world. And a lot of the time, our application in the text is going to be embracing something that is true, that maybe doesn't have immediate application for our relationships or our job or our families. God's going to call us to believe things differently. So as we look at this, oh, I'm going to back up. As we look at this, there are going to be a lot of things that God's going to call us to. What does it teach me about myself or mankind? We're going to see that this passage tells us that God is merciful. And so what are we to do? What is our application? Develop mercy. Become people who are merciful because that mirrors the good character of God. As we see that God um, expresses his mercy to us in the gospel, we want to be reminded of what mercy is. It's not getting the punishment for our sin that we deserve. And so how do we apply that mercifulness in our own lives? When somebody has wronged us and they rightly deserve to be um, alienated from us, distanced from us in relationship, but they come to us asking for forgiveness, we do not give them the punishment that their sin deserves. We extend mercy. We want to be people of mercy. In this passage, we don't have Um, a lot we don't have any of the implied you commands we don't have anything that's forthright but we do have a ton of things that we're supposed to believe differently this passage is teaching us all about what is true and eternal and that's that our our security is what's eternal that inheritance is worth more than your 401k the eternality of our good news of the good news of the gospel gives us an eternal inheritance that is unfading imperishable kept in heaven for us. And so do you know what that means for our lives? We can stop believing that getting a beach house is the hallmark of maturity in life, that we've arrived. We can believe differently about the things of this world. It frees us up to be generous, to give towards missions, to give towards the expansion of God's kingdom through the local church. We can make all of our resources available to God because he has given us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven. Now, that doesn't negate wise stewardship. We're just talking about this passage. The other, other texts throughout the Bible say a lot about how to manage your funds. So I'm not saying just give it all up. We're not all called to do that. But we, are a, we can make ourselves available to God because he has given us an internal inheritance. So we don't have to worry about things that the world worries about. We don't have to worry about whether or not we're keeping up with the Joneses or whether or not um, what we have will last. We don't have to protect our possessions um, in such a way that keeps us from practicing hospitality. Um, one of the books that i loved this last year is Rosaria Butterfield's The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's all about hospitality. It will wreck you, so read it, read it in a good season. Um, But it's a book that I read and immediately put on my husband's nightstand because it's really something you can only do together. So um, it is so good. But she actually says at the end of her book, one of the most powerful statements is because her book is all about gospel hospitality. Make your home, make your possessions, make your time, make your space available for people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she says at the end, and if you are too worried about your possessions, such that you can't have your neighbor over, the only people that you can have over are other people who will bow to the same idols that you will bow to. It is such a hard word, but one that was so good for me to hear, because if I'm so worried about my white rug that my friend with kids can't come over, that so I can't spend time and have a discipleship relationship with her, then something's wrong with my relationship with my rug, <laughs> Right? So we have the freedom in the gospel to give up stuff like that, to say this is temporary, this is perishing, but do you know it's not the gospel and the inheritance kept in heaven? So that's how we get to application. So when you come to the Bible, when you come to the Bible and you say, what, how do I understand this for me? We don't want to start there. We want to start by saying, what does this passage say? What does this passage mean? That's comprehension and interpretation. And then we move to application and say, okay, now, how should I change? How should this change me? And then lastly, we want to say, how do I communicate this? So flip over. How do I share this? We're going to talk about a lot of things. Um, But before, there's sort of this bridge step. We sort of have this gap step between application how should this change me and how do I share that with others and it's very simple and it's this oh there we go we want to pray and we want to pray again like I said about reading the text read it and then read it again we want to pray and we want to pray again it is the Holy Spirit who's going to make God's word alive to you as you seek to apply it into your lives I've had so many students um, when I was doing campus ministry for a season I had so many students that were like what God what is God's will for my life I'm about to graduate I have no idea what I'm doing And what is God's will? And why won't he show it to me? Why won't he show me his will? And the truth is is that, friends, God doesn't play hide and seek with us. He wants to show us his will. He wants to reveal to us how he would have us grow and change. And so ask him, as you read the text, as you go through your Bible study, ask him, Lord, how should this change me? Show me by your spirit. And maybe he won't give you something. He won't bring something to mind in the moment. But throughout your day, you might go, oh, that passage is coming to mind right now. I probably need to practice that principle in this relationship, in this situation. The Spirit of God is going to apply these things to your lives and also show you how to apply it to the lives of others, how you can help people come along in understanding the Scriptures. So when we talk about teaching or communication, we want to ask people, how can we share this? And, um, if I, if I could, I've done this illustration before, it's so much better if I have the physical props, but it makes a big mess and you'll see why. But I had a friend once give me this illustration. She held a saucer and a teacup and she said, so many of us, you know, we fill up our teacup and, you know, we, um, view this as like the Lord's provision for our spiritual nourishment and we take sips out of it as we need to. And we're so grateful. But then all of a sudden somebody comes along and we're like, let me give you the rest of what I have in my teacup. Let me tell you, like, it's just not sufficient because then you come back and you're spiritually empty. But she said what God has promised us in his will or in his word is that as we study the scriptures, as we walk with God, God's going to fill us to overflowing. She says we can only give to people out of our saucer. So if we have an overflowed cup, we can give to people out of our saucer, out of what God has given us in abundance. We can't give out of a dry cup. We can't give out of something we have not received from God himself as His people, as people who walk with Him ourselves. And so we need to be people who pray, who spend time in the Word, who do all these things, because only then are we ready to communicate those truths to other people. Um, I was talking to a woman recently as Austin and I are preparing for church planting. We're talking to people about being a part of the church, and we're really careful because Austin and I are very aware that a lot of times in church planting the perception is that we just have a bunch of Christians playing musical pews like we just move around from church to church and people never really settle and so they never really get discipled but church plants should grow by conversion like that's the way church plants should grow by new people hearing the gospel by new people who are de-churched coming into the church that's our goal that's our hope and the vision that we have for Trinity Church Greenville and so we've been talking to some people that we would said, hey, would you pray about coming alongside us in discipling some of these baby, baby believers that we have in front of us? And they are Christians. They're mature Christians that are plugged into a church. And um, so we approach that very hesitantly because we don't want to pulp anybody out of where they're called to be. If they're in a church where they're growing and called to be, we want to say, with blessings, please stay there. You have to follow what God has for you. But I was talking to a believer recently, and she said, we came to this church because my daughter really found a kinship um, in a difficult season of her life. And so her high school daughter got plugged in. She said, but you know what? I turned to my husband um, last Sunday and said, you know, I just realized that we haven't opened our Bibles on a Sunday morning in a year and a half. A year and a half. And so Austin and I were shocked to our core. But the main thing that we couldn't figure out is what do you say up there? What do you say if you're not opening the word of God? What do you say? She said, we always talk about Jesus, but we never open our Bibles. And I just thought, as a Bible teacher, my husband said this, as a preacher, I don't know what you say. I don't think I could get through one message without opening the Bible. Because if it's on the Bible, you can be like, listen to the Bible. I didn't say the God said it. I didn't say it. God said it. But if you don't have your, the word opened, what do we have to say? If we don't have the Bibles in front of us, we don't have much content. I can only imagine myself maybe not talk like if I had to give a message without the Bible, I maybe have 20 minutes of content in my life. But give the Bible, and churches can preach and teach for years and decades and generations. And so we can't pass on to people just good stories. We, we have nothing to give people if we're not in the words ourselves, in the word ourselves, and also willing to open the scriptures with other people. And so here, I want to give us a couple of very practical points as we close our time together. I want to give us some very practical points of what it looks like to prepare and help us share the word of God in simple ways that people can understand. So the first thing I want to help us do is understand what it looks like to simplify the text into one phrase. In the preaching world, we call this the big idea of preaching. We want to summarize what the text is saying. We're going to take all of this content together, everything we studied and everything we've learned, and be able to say it in one sentence, one simple, memorable sentence. And what that does for us is it helps us understand whether or not we've really gotten to the core of the text. A lot of people will tell you, in seminary we had to do, um, when we practiced Bible teaching, we would practice, you know, 20-minute-long messages. And then they, I got to one class where the first message was 20 minutes, the second message was 15 minutes, and the last message was six minutes. And I thought, I think this is backwards. Like, I think that they mean for us to work up to teaching for 20 minutes. Oh, no, 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 no. Because it is so much harder to say in six minutes what you can in 20 minutes. It gets so much harder to be more concise and precise. So saying it in one sentence gives you a good idea of whether or not we've grasped the concept. So we want to take all the information we have and we want to summarize it in one sentence. And so we want to look at what the big idea is for the immediate audience. What is the big idea? What is the one general statement that can be said for the original audience? Look through everything you've studied and say it for the original audience. And this is what I would say for First Peter, you can hope in the reality that your salvation is eternal and your current sufferings are temporary. You can hope in the reality that your salvation is eternal and your current sufferings are temporary. That takes everything that we've learned about the original author, the original audience, takes all of that information, the genre, all of it, puts it all together and summarizes it for the original audience. And then we want to take it a step further and summarize it in one sentence for us today, we want to generalize it because we are not people of the dispersion. We are not living in modern day Turkey. So, how do we zoom out and put, distill the big idea for us today? And if we do that with 1 Peter, here is what I would say In all of our earthly trials, we can have hope because our salvation is secure. We may not have the temporary trials that they have, the same temporary trials sufferings that they were experiencing. But we know in our suffering today, we can have hope because our salvation is eternal. This is a great way to teach kids the word. If you are studying something, if you, let's say you're studying through Philippians, let's say you're studying through First Peter, and you're doing all these things, and you might think, how does this have any application to my life and ministry? Summarize it in one statement and help your kids grasp what it means to have eternal security in the face of difficult daily circumstances. For neighbors and friends that suffer, this is a great thing to say, I have just learned in my quiet time that we have hope in our trials because our salvation is eternal. We can have hope because our salvation is secure. And say, let me show you where I saw that and walk them through First Peter. This is a way that we learn to study the scriptures and then use them to share the good news, the hope of Jesus. When I'm teaching, for those of you who think, I want to do something a little more formal, like I might want to put together ideas for a Bible study. I, want to, I might want to teach from a stage someday. That's kind of what I'm thinking I want to work towards. I, when I'm teaching, I repeat my big idea three times. I will read it over and over, and I will rephrase it. And so if I was teaching this passage, I would say, when we face suffering in this life, we can have hope because our inheritance is secure. In seasons of suffering, our hope rests not in our momentary trials, ending this side of heaven, but that our salvation is assured in heaven. In all of our earthly trials, we can have hope because our salvation is secure. If you rephrase it several times, It's going to grab different people. So even try that with neighbors. Try that with friends. Boil it down in your quiet time to one sentence and then use that throughout your day to pass on the good news, the hope that we have in Jesus to others. And then one of the biggest questions that we have, one of the biggest, oh, sorry, hold on. I'm going to go past this. One of the biggest questions that we have That I get from people about passing on what we've studied to other people. One of the biggest questions that we get is how do I help other people apply this? And I want to remind us that the Holy Spirit is going to show people specifically what they're supposed to do with this. Thankfully, that is one of the other incommunicable attributes of God. We do not need to be the Holy Spirit and police the righteousness of other people. But God will give us opportunity to show people how a certain text applies to their situation. And so I think illustrating a text really helps people grasp the word pictures that are there. So if you are in a situation where you can share with people about what it looks like to hold on to eternal security, even when you're in a difficult life circumstance, illustrate that from your own life. If I was teaching this text, I would tell you that there was a season when Austin and I lived in Colorado when we were broke as a joke. We um, had moved out there for jobs that immediately fell through. We had an apartment. We had all of our stuff um, there. And I had finally been able to find a job, like sort of bounce back and get a job where I was making like $7.95 an hour, just above minimum wage. And I was paying for our apartment, which was thousands of dollars each month. And we barely, we were cutting, we were in the red every month. So we were cutting into our savings, cutting into our savings, and Austin could not find work. We were in such a dire circumstance, and it was in that situation where I kept saying, Lord, why do not you bring an end to this? Why aren't you putting an end to these trials? Why aren't you bringing this to an end? I now look back and realize that in hindsight, I see that what God was doing was he was helping me relinquish control and relinquish my security being found in my earthly possessions and grab a hold of Christ as my only source of sustenance. God was doing that in my life, but he did it through trials. And so it was through a personally painful situation that I sought the Lord, and he brought us to our knees to say our only hope is Jesus. Our hope is not in having a savings account. Our hope is not in having these things. It was God who was going to have to provide for us, and that's how God used it. And so I would, I would illustrate this to somebody else in helping them understand how God might have the supply in their lives. Personal illustrations are always going to be the most powerful, but recognize that illustrations always have their limits. We can't interpret for somebody else what it's going to look like to apply a passage. And so we don't want to start illustrating a passage for somebody and then get so attached to our illustration that something goes awry. I don't know if you've ever heard um, preachers or teachers do this, where um, they start with an illustration, then you kind of realize, like, if we play this out, the illustration isn't quite what the text is saying, we can get so attached to these illustrations that all of a sudden it's not exactly true. Like it's not, if we extrapolate it out, it's not exactly true. So we just want to recognize the limitations that any illustration has and let the Lord be part of applying it to somebody else's life. So this is what I would explain to somebody if I was giving this illustration of us in Colorado. I would say that faith is worth more than earthly possessions. That enduring faith gives God eternal glory and that enduring faith has an eternal perspective. If I was teaching this from a stage, this is how I would teach this. So if you're thinking maybe I want to take it beyond t- talking to my neighbor, beyond talking to my friends, this is how I would teach this. I would, I would teach it in this sort of um, outlined way and I would give these illustrations about what, it would, what our life was like in Colorado and what that would look like. And then lastly, we want to help other people apply it by giving them the big idea put together with illustrations and asking them and asking the Lord with them to show them how this can apply in their lives. We want to ask people to consider what it would look like in their lives. I think one of the best things that we can do to help people apply is ask good questions. If we're to give people this teaching from the book of 1 Peter that our internal inheritance far outweighs our temporary trials, if we're going to encourage other people with this, I think I would say to somebody, how have you seen this in your life? How have you experienced this in your walk with God? If they don't know the Lord, say, you know, I have a friend that has experienced this in this way. Does that resonate with you at all? Is that something that stirs something in you? Have you seen this happen? Do you know anybody that that's happened with? Ask good questions because it's going to help them apply it to their lives. Friends, we have not just such a wealth of inheritance in the word of God, but also in, not just in um, our eternal security, not just what 1 Peter says, but also in the word of God. This is something that has been entrusted to us. God has given us his word, and he has seen it fit that the way that the gospel message spreads is through you and me. God has seen it fit to entrust you and you and you and you with the good news of the gospel, and you are his mission plan. You are uh, his option A. He doesn't have any plan B for the gospel going forward other than to let his church spread the good news of the gospel. We are his mission work, and so we must take the word of God as we study it and share it with others. We need to share it compellingly, winsomely, with grace. But God's word calls us to always have the word of God on our lips. So as we close our time together, I want to encourage you. You are equipped to study the Bible. You are able to do it. There is not one person in this room that cannot read God's word and understand what it says. And we are able to do this in community as we help each other walk towards being women who are rooted in God's word. And just like the tree that we saw in Psalm 1, we want to be women who have deep roots that go into the ground, deep roots into the word of God, but also are bearing fruit that we're giving away the good news of the gospel. We're not meant to be hoarders, spiritual hoarders. We're not meant to just store up in storehouses all this good spiritual knowledge that we learn from God's word, but to open those doors and share it with others. And so you are equipped. You are able to do that. You are able to share the good news of the gospel. And here is my hope that the next time that somebody invites you to share from the word of God, whether it be in an informal conversation, whether it be in a Bible study, or whether it be at an event like this, that you say yes, That's going to be my encouragement to you, and it is my hope that I hear someday from one of you who says, I said yes the next time I was asked, and I would love to hear from you, and I would love to hear how it went, because I think that as we see more and more women equipped and raised up to teach the Bible, to study the Word of God, and to use the scriptures to share the gospel, we're going to see the kingdom of God being built as his spirit moves throughout this world. So that's my encouragement to you. You are equipped to do this. You are able to do this. And you are empowered by God to do it. In your Bible, you have everything that you need to be women who study and teach the Bible. And my encouragement to you now is to do it. Do these things with passion and vigor and take not lightly the responsibility to be women of the word. I wanna give you one um, small gift to equip you in further doing this. If this is something that you're saying, I really want to do it and I don't know how to start, um, I have an online digital Bible study that I teach. And right now we're going through the Way of the Kingdom, the Lent study. And so if you're here at this event, if you have registered, everybody um, that's a part of it is going to get a free subscription for a month to be able to start that study to kind of, you know, cut your teeth a little bit on how do we, how do we start doing this? How do we do this? So if you, um, I don't have it written anywhere, I don't have it written down somewhere, but if you go to my website, which is on the handout, and you use the coupon code Psalm1, that's with a capital P and the number one, um, that'll allow you to have access for a month and start studying the Bible in that way. So you're welcome, oh, it is on there? It's on there. It's on there. So um, the little, the long, the long half sheet, yep, that one. So um, the website's on there. If you use the coupon code Psalm1, you'll be able to do that Bible study for free for a month, Um, and I pray that it's a blessing for you um, as you seek to be women who apply this in your daily lives. So um, here's what I'd like to ask as we close um, this workshop together. I'd like to invite you to stand, and I'd like to pray for you, Um, and I'd like to pray that the Lord would take these materials, take this teaching, take both Psalm 1 and John 4, and work them into our hearts in a way that we don't soon forget and that we don't get to Monday morning and forget to apply. Um, So as you stand, let me pray for y'all.